Entrepreneur Circle is an on-air brands production and a proud member of the On-Air Brands Network. Hi, this is Robert Kiyosaki, and you're listening to Entrepreneur Circle with Eric Cabral. On this episode... And when I talk to people, you know, that's a big hot-button topic of conversation is how do you separate between work and life and stuff like that. And my, usually my guidance to them is, is not only that you don't, but you go 180 degrees the other way and you lean into it more, right? Hey there, folks. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Entrepreneur Circle podcast, where we inspire you by talking to entrepreneurs and business owners about mindset, goals, vision, tips and strategies on how to crush life and business. I am your host, Eric Cabral, real estate investor and a creative. I've been in the creative industry for over 20 years, got my start in New York City as a junior art director and made my way up the corporate ladder to become the creative director at the number one pharma company in the world. That was until I decided to hang up my corporate hat and start my own creative agency called On Air Brands, where we broadcast your brand and your message using social media and live stream events. Hit us up at info at onairbrands.com to learn more. Also, like, subscribe, and share this podcast on social. We greatly appreciate you for it. And also, don't hesitate to send us any feedback that you may have because we always love love, love hearing from you. Before we jump into the show, I'd like to share what some of our sponsors, partners, and friends of the show have to offer you. Hey there, entrepreneurs. Eric Cabral here, founder of On Air Brands and host of the Entrepreneur Circle and Capital Hacking. I wanted to share something truly unique with you that we've created called Pod Max, which is an amazing opportunity to connect you with major podcasts to help you share your fascinating stories with their communities. This unique invitation-only event includes interviews with you on top-rated business podcasts all in one day. It also provides a unique networking opportunity with high-performance guests and thought leaders who are authors, coaches and consultants, investors, speakers, executives, you name it. These are the type of people that you need to be around. We also provide industry expert keynotes to hit our stage to share insights on podcasting, investing, marketing to help you take things to the next level. And the cool thing about Podmax is that it has a multimedia agency engine behind it with on-air brands to provide social media promotions before and after the event to share your brand new shows with your network. So hit the apply now button at podmax.co and I hope to see you at the next Podmax event. Yeah, why would a Twitch studio be different than any other studio? I honestly think, I mean, I don't know this to be facts, so don't quote me on it necessarily. I think yeah, yeah. the whole prospect is have it there so that people can experience it in its like best format so that you know, you're know you living it a little bit. Kind of like Gary's whole mantra about going out and, and tasting it, right? If you want to be on TikTok, like, you can't be on TikTok unless you try creating content. So uh, part, of, part of the Twitch experience isn't just you know, going in and gaming, it's watching video gaming, right? That's like a core component of it. That's why like online gaming and esports is taking off right now because they're positioning it as a real sport, something that is a, a, a tune-in event, right? You go to it not just to compete, you go to it to watch other people competing. So there's multiple monitors, I imagine. There's seating. Then again, I've been to New York uh, in probably, I don't know, four months. So I'm not sure exactly what it looks like today, but 
Yeah, it's pretty cool. Gotcha. And you're currently in LA? I'm in LA, yeah. But you were based here for a while, right in New York City. Yeah, so I was in New York for 10 years or so. Um, I'm from the DC area originally, uh, but moved to New York in 2010. And then I've been in LA for a year now. Yeah. You know what? Let's just start the show. I like this organic feel to it. So folks, you guys were flies on the wall. Uh, Joe and I were talking offline and then I just hit record because we started talking about Twitch Studios. And But I want to welcome Joe Quattrone to the show, Entrepreneur's Circle. Thanks so much for being here, brother. Thanks for having me. Little background on Joe, which is super impressive. Joe is the senior VP of the Sasha Group, which is a VaynerX company. Um, he was previously the SVP of VaynerMedia, and he has a long storied history in marketing and advertising, especially in New York City. And that's one of the big reasons why I reached out to you too, other than us working together on the side and and, and James Orsini being a part of one of our events. When he introduced us, I was like, man, I, this guy feels like a brother from another mother. So I wanted to dive into, I feel like what you, what I was on the trajectory of moving towards, but you know, you're you're crushing it, dude, and, and, and everything and, and accomplishing all the dreams that I had before I left corporate America, you know, for 20 years. And, um, you know, it, it, it's anyway, that's my story, but I want to get into yours. Um, so you, you've worked on amazing brands, dude, like, you know, Hulu and Audi and you know, even GSK, you know, that's where I'm from, the pharma world. And um, let's talk about that. But I also want to start off with an unexpected question. So what was it like at the dinner table in the Quatron household? Pretty standard, you know, kind of middle America. Like I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. and in the suburbs of D.C. in a place called Fairfax, Virginia. You know, just like a normal middle class, you know, kind of uh, event. Uh, you know, my life, it was not like that, nothing to brag about or write home about. Uh, you know, we were normal people. My, you know, my dad uh, for a number of years was in... Uh, computer uh you know sales and stuff like that before switching streams and becoming a contractor and he kind of you know lived out the rest of his career being a a, a class c general contractor my mom wasn't had the same job for 30 years um she always focused on us as kids so like she always tried to have uh have a job that was within a mile from from our school so that she could pick us up and we could have a parent around in the afternoons uh have dinner on the table at five every night and um, I don't know, she like, you know, we're Italian, so a lot of spaghetti, a lot of stuffed shells, uh, those types of meals were on the table, uh, you know, at any given night. And then, uh, you know, just good conversation. Um, I'm still pretty good friends with both of my sisters, and uh, I, I talk to my parents at least once a week. So, um, you know, great relationship. My parents are still married. They're going to celebrate 50 years of marriage uh, next October. So, yeah, happy, healthy, a lot of laughs, uh, a lot of what you know what happened in the day and then me and my dad are big sports fans so eventually it probably dovetailed off into some sports conversations yeah yeah uh so mostly uh sort of dc or where does your loyalties lie oh yeah all the way through dc dc everything (laughs) dc all day redskins wizards capitals uh nationals uh i I said the wizards number two which is weird because they're definitely like number four or five on the list like i might even have the dc united ahead of the wizards (laughs) i remember the days when there were no wizards right and jordan and all that they were in uh the wizards were in baltimore first uh they were the bullets and then they came to dc 
in the seventies, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool, man. Yeah. I'm a big basketball fan, you know, New York Knicks all the way, even though we're terrible, awful, awful. I, yeah. Gary, I guess too. He's a, it just breaks our hearts being a New York fan, <laughs> especially the Knicks. It is interesting though, that, uh, that you, that you have to preface that question these days with like, are you loyal to your city? But yeah. like back in the day, even a Dude. question that was a given now it's with the the prominence and the rise of the individual athlete in the nba specifically now i think there's a lot of people that just follow athletes around versus moving yeah 100 percent. what's your what's your you're into sports more than i am so where do you think that when did that start who was the catalyst for that was it jordan i think it started in the nba in the 90s uh you know i had a lot of friends growing up that had two sets of allegiances. They liked their hometown, but they also liked their players. And it was really when Jordan came out and the sneakers in particular, Jordan, a couple other athletes crossed over like Bo Jackson, Bo Jackson yeah. Andre, Andre Agassi. Like yeah. I think there was like a, a sneaker culture to it that, you know, made us like athletes beyond, you know, the team or the city that they represented. And um, yeah, I remember a lot of my friends being super into the Knicks and the and the Celtics and the Bulls back in the 90s. But then they kind of slyly, you know, if the Wizards were good or the Bullets were good one year, they would root for them too. But like, um, no, nah, I mean, everybody liked the players and the, the storylines in the NBA back in the 90s. Yeah, Joe Namath too pops in my head, you know, back in the, I guess, 70s where he transcended his team and everybody was talking about Joe Namath this and even boxing, I guess too, right? People became, um, well, they became loyal to where they were from, but also, you know, you know, the Tyson era and all those guys prior. In a lot of ways, even though like baseball isn't necessarily something I would like classify as an individual sport, I think baseball got a lot of people started because when you're in little league and you're playing baseball, you know, in a lot of different towns, not in all towns, but in a lot of different towns across the country, you're wearing the uniforms and the hats of all these other teams that are in the, in the MLB. Uh, I mean, I think through my lifetime, I played baseball for 10, 15 years. I, I was on the Phillies, the Cubs, the A's, the Astros, the Orioles. So to some extent, you wind up liking everybody. And it's just you like the game so much. And, you know, you represent almost anybody as long as it's not the rival of your club. Yeah, yeah. This is interesting, dude. I, I do want to get into your story, but the, I'm, I'm, fa- I'm fascinated by this because I don't get to often talk about how this fuses right into what we do, which is building brands, right? So what's the, what do you think is the parallels? And, and, and maybe, maybe you can sort of pinpoint the era, maybe it was Jordan or Pryor, um, where personal brand, that wasn't really a term used a lot, you know, growing up in the 70s for me and 80s. Uh, but now it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like an everyday term in every household. So when building those brands, what do you think was sort of, the eye-opening moment for our culture to be like, we all need a personal brand. And like before that was the Oprah's and the Tony Robbins and the Jordans, but now it became a thing that we all sort of own and everyone's a walking brand. Like, can you sort of maybe figure out when it, when it, when it happened? I first started to get a whiff of it back in like 2007-ish uh, when I was in grad school. A buddy of mine was always on the, the leading edge of technology and he was a, he was my roommate. We were really good friends. Uh, and he created a blog. And at the time, it was a pretty novel concept. And it rose to prominence because he learned about you know SEO and how to get page page rank and linking and all that kind of stuff. And he was doing a pretty good job to the point where it even started to outrank 
our own school's website in terms of like page rank and prominence uh, for our marketing program. And it was like the talk of the university. So when we got back for second year, um, our teachers always fancying themselves as having a pretty progressive curriculum. They made it mandatory, uh, a mandatory assignment for every student to have a blog. Uh, so that we could learn about it, we could start to write, get our opinions out there and all that kind of stuff. And that's when I first kind of got turned on to this idea of, you know, hey, you know, journalism is getting democratized. You know, everybody can have a voice. You don't have to just, you know, rely on the news that you hear uh, when you go to different websites like the New York Times or even, you know, more editorial stuff out there. Um, and then a couple years, about five years later, you started to see people get really famous from blogging, right? <laughs> and then Instagram came out as like the ultimate accompaniment uh, of blogging and became the visual format of blogging. Um, and then people started getting even more famous uh, from things like Instagramming. Uh, and I think podcast is another derivation of that. Uh, you know, it just depends. Like, I think Gary puts it in a, in a really succinct way, right? When Gary talks to people about you know, go find out what you're good at, right? Are you good good at being a camera? Are you good at talking? Or are you good at writing, right? And then lean into that thing, right? And then if you think about it in those con- constructs that anybody can be their own brand, right? Anybody can have a brand. You have thoughts, you know, figure out how to best communicate them in a way where people are going to want to engage with you. And I'd say Gary, as an individual of, of all the people that I've witnessed, uh, is kind of like, you know, He's out there as like the standard bearer of the idea of personal brand uh, from somebody that that literally can can create content every single minute of every single day. Uh, that is his brand. And, and I think he's the perfect example of what a personal brand is in 2020. Yeah, that's beautiful. As you're talking about, you know, Gary and sort of uh, the culture that that's been created over there. How is he on on everyone on the team and within the company? in terms of building your own personal brand, which will ultimately help, you know, Vayner in the long run. Is he a big proponent and advocate for everyone sort of developing a brand? Does he push people who are sort of introverted to find some channel that they'll shine on? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't necessarily go out and like say, hey, you, you need to be creating this or you need to be creating that. Um, But he lets it be known to us in various different ways. Uh, I think ever since I've known him, he lets it be known to us that he's watching our behavior on channels, right? Like he's, you know, when we create things that he likes or, you know, put our opinions out there that that he thinks, or if we create something in a very contemporary fashion on a platform that's very contemporary. Uh, He gives us credit and kudos and props and stuff like that. He doesn't necessarily try to censor us uh, either. So we're all free to kind of make our own, uh, you know, decisions and go out there and do whatever we want. I do know it's it's a little bit different though when representing the opinion and the point of view of VaynerX and the in the actual companies within it. Uh, so we try to make sure that we're very specific about whether or not these are our opinions or whether or not it's the opinion of the brand uh, or any brands within. But no, he's pretty good about that stuff. And James, who you know is is also you know excellent about that stuff. He's a little bit more pointed at it, like hey, as leaders, we need to be out there talking on platforms. Um, so, so James is a little bit more specific about it, about what the expectation on leadership is to go out and be on podcasts and you know, you know, write opinion pieces on LinkedIn and stuff like that. Um, and here's our swim lanes, and these are the things that we as a company care about and stuff like that. So, um, you know, James is definitely uh, high up there as well on the, the cheerleading spectrum. I'm curious about your your teams internally, uh, where as you start to develop personal brands and, you know, 
I imagine, have to craft these stories and these posts on your own. At some point, you know, given all the responsibilities that you have for the company, are you able to use the resources available to you, you know, from the Umbrella Corporation to sort of help because it is all fused together? Um, yeah, I mean, a good example is we're, we're, we're going to be creating a podcast within the Sasha Group. Um, so chances are we're going to be tapping into people that work within the group. Um, a lot of the senior leadership team, a lot of friends of the family, stuff like that. Um, there's no reason why if I go out there and I say something on the Sasha group podcast that, you know, is coming from my internal source of truth that I wouldn't then take that content and publish it to my own social media. Uh, and that would further my reach and remit as well. Um, there, you know, so yeah, I think there is some crossover. It's kind of hard to keep them separate. Um, but I also think that's, you know, when I talk to young people today, I do, I do a lot of outreach to people that are, you know, graduating from college or grad school coming into this current economy and stuff like that and try to mentor as much as I can. And when I talk to people, you know, that's a big hot button topic of conversation is how do you separate between work and life and stuff like that. And my, usually my guidance to them is, is not only that you don't, but you go 180 degrees the other way and you lean into it more, right? Um, there's, especially if you're still in college, a lot of, and you're still making choices about your life and, you know, who you want to partner with and where you want to live and all those kind of things. Don't hide who you are, right? Don't suppress, you know, your desires and your passions and stuff like that. Just like you wouldn't, you know, necessarily suppress personal information about you that you use to identify yourself. Don't, don't suppress that. Don't choose your mates based on some other false, you know, person that you're not right. Like if you're passionate about marketing and branding and that's what you want to do every single day and it's what gives you purpose and that's what you wake up to do, then don't hide it from your spouse. Don't not talk to them about what you do every single day. You know, like uh, don't necessarily bring the emotional baggage home from your workplace, but that shouldn't stop you from, you know, talking about the cool thing you worked on, right? Like the thing that I've always loved is that within my profession, I, I get to tell people I'm one of the few people on earth that gets to work on social media every day for a job. Like they pay me for it. <laughs> I get to work on brands like Budweiser and Hulu and, you know, uh, you know, some of the coolest brands you've ever seen out of America. Like I get to work on some of the coolest brands on some of the coolest platforms, just talking and having conversations every day. So that's, you know, an infinite source of youth for me, like in passion. And I would never want to live a, a censored life where those two things can't bleed with, with bleed together. I'm the same way about my personal life, even though like I do value my privacy. I also like to be able to talk to people on social media from a business standpoint about what it's like to be a father or a husband and have a high profile job and, you know, work in marketing and advertising and stuff like that. I think it, it makes me more interesting to talk about me, the authentic person than, to like, oh no, I don't have a family. Forget about that. No, yeah, I have a family. That's a big part of who I am, you know? Yeah, yeah. Speaking of who you are, a big part of who you are, um, let's take us back. You know, um, you're in school in Virginia or, you know, you're as you were coming up and, and, and getting a, your, your education, what made you gravitate towards branding and marketing, advertising? Did you always have a passion for, for helping others with their voice? What, what was the early days? Early days for me in the space were kind of just coming to the realization of what I wanted to do. So I I didn't have necessarily the same, you know, 
classical upbringing as everybody else, right? Like where it's neat and tidy and you go to high school, you get good grades, then you go to college, the college that your parents want you to go to, everything's planned out for you. You choose your major two years in and then you, you specialize in all that kind of stuff. Um, well, I say I grew up in a very middle class surroundings. What I meant by that was lower middle class, right? Like we were, you know, we were living in a nice neighborhood, but my family in particular, we didn't have a ton of things. We didn't have a ton of money. Um, we were very humble. Um, and when I went to college, I knew it was going to be on my own. I knew I was going to have to pay for it or get student loans or any of that kind of stuff, which is very common to what I'm seeing with young people today, right? The, the parents just didn't have the, the financial means to put them into a place to, to get them a college education. So I spent three years uh, after high school just thinking about what I want to do with my life. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I was overweight. I was kind of like depressed and down on myself. Um, I was feeling really, really bad about myself and, and kind of where I was in life. And, um, and I was kind of blaming the world. I was blaming, uh, the fact that all of my peers and friends, you know, had these great upbringings and were able to go to whatever college they wanted to and kind of have, have their whole life planned out and mapped out for them. Um, but then I, I, an interesting thing happened. I picked myself off the, off the mat. I decided to lose a bunch of weight. I went running every day for, uh, well, my plan was to go every day for a hundred days. And I wound up going every day for like 500 or 450 days lost over a hundred pounds. And then once I started to see the power of, you know, what we are capable of as human beings, uh, that, that stuck with me. And I started to plan out other things. And the next thing that I tackled from that point was really putting some thought around what I wanted to spend every day doing with my life and what I wanted to study and, and, and what I wanted to craft my, my career in. And the more and more I kept thinking about it, and a lot of times I was thinking about it on these runs. I would like intentionally go out running and I wouldn't take headphones with me. I would just clear my head, nothing in my head, just thinking. And um, one of the things that I kept kind of coming back to was I was fascinated by my dad and I was fascinated at how much of a hobbyist and collector he was. And um, and I, I say that like kind of like half joking, but like he's obsessed with collecting things. Like it comes in every shape and form. He's kind of a hoarder now, but you know, back in his heyday, he would collect like old vintage Coca-Cola machines. He had a collection of cars. He had a Mustang, a 66 fastback Mustang, I think. And like, I think he also had a convertible 67, but everything to my dad was a collection. And I started wondering about the psychology of what makes people tick and why do they want to collect things? What do the brands mean to these people, right? Because a lot of the things that my dad cared about were brands. <laughs> and, um, and I started looking into that behavior and I started to notice it on other people like my uncle and my cousins. And, like, and then when the, what we kicked off the conversation with, when, you know, Jordans and like, you know, sneakers in general and like my friends at the, you know, when, when I was in elementary school, like what did they care about? And everything kept pointing back to brand for some reason for me. And, um, and once I kind of started connecting all those dots, I started to do my research and homework on, okay, well, what are some of the career fields that are relevant to brands and marketing and advertising were, were two of the top things. So I set my sights on a marketing degree and, um, based on my macro level ability to plan and kind of see things through. Um, that's what I did. I went to college for, for marketing and advertising and I grad eventually, you know, some five years or so later, five, six years later, I wound up graduating with a master's degree in, in uh, creative brand management uh, from the VCU brand center. And yeah, so I've been plotting my career out against this massive goal. Like I gave myself at age 21, a goal to become a CMO one day. 
And uh, everything, every choice I've made since I was 21 has been based on that, that goal that I made in life. And it's weird because I'm 41 now and it's never been, you know, more vivid. It's always been the compass that I judge all of my decisions by. And because I have this big, huge goal up top, I can make all the micro decisions a lot easier. You know, I think it's kind of like Gary. You said Gary set the Jets, spying the Jets off on such a plateau, to be such a high end, long distance goal of his that it just makes all of your temporary, short term decisions much more binary. You're either getting closer or you're getting farther away from it. Well, congratulations on that, brother. I mean, for most people to get clarity at that young of an age, especially, uh, and I love how it happened for you, you know, on, on runs. You know, the clarity came through exercise when we are really releasing toxins, you know, uh, getting our clearest moments at times, especially if you're not, you know, plugged in um, and and you're just alone with your own thoughts, which most people aren't comfortable with, you know. So, yeah, congrats to you for for finding clarity and then pointing your compass and, and staying on track, uh, because I know that is challenging for a lot of people. Funny you say that uh, alone with your own thoughts, and most people are uncomfortable with that. Because one thing that I tell people, uh, not necessarily from a professional standpoint, more from a you know love advice perspective or a, a self care perspective, is it's hard to love other people until you love yourself. So uh, you know it, you you learn the definition of love by kind of treating yourself with care. And um, it was that those moments, those years of really pouring my energy into like bettering myself that I was able to prime myself and prepare myself to be ready to love other people like my wife and my kids and, and people that I work with and, and that kind of thing. During your journey of discovery and clarity and self-awareness, uh, did you find your wife during that process or was, were you already sort of clear? I met her when I was 25, 26. So this was probably about four years after I had lost all that weight. So I had gotten to college, undergrad, I had gone through most of undergrad, and then I met her almost last semester, probably like the December prior to my, going into my last semester of college. Gotcha. I, I want to I identify some new parallels here. That, that's kind of the theme of the show, where um, are there any anything, because you run a lot of businesses, you have a lot of teams, you know, a lot of responsibility, how much of that, those tactics and strategies get baked into home life? Do you have structure there, you know, one-on-ones, you know, things that you do to manage your team with the, you know, do you use those tactics in, with your children or your wife when you have conversations? I wish I had more structure. I think that would come in handy right now when it comes to being locked at home during the pandemic. Um, but I think it's a little bit of a free-for-all now because uh, not only did we not plan to be home, but we didn't plan on the kids being home. And also they're at an age where they can't really do school through Zoom. So it's kind of this constant, like, you know, hang on and survive, try to get through the work day and then try to like, you know, pour your, your parental guilt into like spending one-on-one -on -one time with them afterwards. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like in general, like, I, you know, I think it's more reverse when I, it's more, what did I learn about being a human that I've applied to the workforce? Right. So uh, for me, it's, I, I think in general, I'm a very patient individual, right? I'm a very loving individual. I care about people in, in, in general. I want the best for my teams. I want to always be pouring in uh, mentorship, education, you know, love and understanding into the teams that I, I build and manage. Um, so for me, there was 
similar to like when I had, you know, visions of what I wanted for my career when I was younger before my career even started or before I even went to college. I also have visions for what I want my family life to be like. I have visions for what I want my team's structure and existence and success to look like. And then I create almost like a dialogue to how do we manifest this behavior? How do we create the, the, the team that we want to create, have the success that we want to have, um, you know, within like Gary's umbrella, here's our team. What do we want to be known for? How is this going to pay off to the ultimate vision that Gary set out? Um, and, you know, I think in, in those cases, that's always helped me, right? The extreme planning, right? The ability to see 24, 36, 48 months down the road, what's going on in society? What are cultural trends? How do we build what we're building here to match up with those? Um, Similar to me and my wife, um, you know, we think about, um, or we, we don't necessarily plan out a strategy like that, but we're definitely in sync and on the same page with like where society and parenting is going, what matters to us, what do we want to, you know, be doing in terms of like discipline and reprimanding kids and uh, what kind of values do we want to drive into them, right? I think one of the things that uh, I think was important to me more when I started having kids than it was prior to having kids was you know, I wanted to make sure me and my wife were on the same page about the role of church in our family, right? <laughs> um, it's so, something that I think a lot of people grapple with, right? You you live in existence when you're a kid, your parents kind of drag you along to church, and then you're free to make your own decisions when you go off to college, and you kind of live maybe a little bit of a subpar life uh, ethically for a while. And then you find your way back home to something more spiritual when you're a little bit older in life, and you have things that mean something to you, like kids. But for me, church, and, uh, you know, even before... I had like a wake up call and, and kind of like a, a moment of like kind of recommitting myself to, to that. We talked about it and we were like, what is the role of church in our family? And uh, to me, it was if nothing else, if we get nothing else out of this, we go every week because we want our kids to have a moral compass and we want them to be exposed to the light and the love of God. Um, and we want to keep doing that on a continuous basis. Um, but we've gotten so much more out of it, right? So that was just a strategic thing going in that we were like, well, we need to figure out what is our strategy for instilling, you know, a good moral compass in our kids. And for me growing up, even though my parents to this day aren't the most religious people in the world, they made a point to take me to church every week. And they made a point to put me in, in Sunday school and, you know, make sure I was uh, getting that education and I can make my choices when I, when I was, you know, old enough to make my choices. Yeah. I'm just curious. I, I, well, I'm assuming you're, you know, as growing up in an Italian household, you, you were raised Catholic. I was. I'm not Catholic anymore. I'm a Presbyterian for what it gotcha. matters. Gotcha. Your wife as well? I mean, what did she grow up? She grew up Southern Baptist. No, so it was quite interesting. We, we grew up at exact opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of tradition and formality. And we met in the middle, kind of, I guess you would say. Was that really challenging or did it come somewhat easy? Not at all. No, we were... Um, neither one of us had a, a high desire to like just conform to the religions we were raised in uh, for, for, for various different reasons. Um, nothing against the Catholic church. There's just so much unethical stuff that goes on behind the scenes that I just couldn't necessarily ignore. And it's uh, it's a little too conservative in terms of the, the way that you receive the message, uh, like a, a tradi- t- traditional mass with all the sacraments and how formal it is. It's not, once I went to like a more kind of like, I don't know what to call it, but new wave way of, you know, experiencing the gospel, uh, when I, we went to like a, a church plant up in Long Island City, which I guess is Baptist, but you don't, they don't really talk about being Baptist. 
and they were like, you know, doing putting scripture up on PowerPoints and singing all these modern songs and stuff like that. Um, that's when I kind of got hooked on on that. And you know, we just we just kind of kept going to different churches, and eventually we settled on one that was, you know, that checked a lot of different boxes spiritually, but also functionally. You know, because our kids wound up getting enrolled in school when we moved to LA in the, uh, the Presbyterian preschool. So here we are. That's awesome. That's awesome. You guys sound like you have a super healthy household, you know, uh, where major decisions like that can often come, uh, you know, with a lot of struggle and, 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 and arguments. And you guys sound like you, you know, you landed on a nice sort of middle ground that, that, that appeases everyone. Yeah. I think the, the reason that might be is because we both are very open-minded when it comes to light. And I posted on LinkedIn about this the other, other week, this notion of like, um, you know, other people's expectations in the way that you perceive them, right? Like, I don't, I, I'm typically not a person that's ever disappointed by people because my expectations of people outside of myself are super low, right? But, you know, and then I, it works in reverse. I stopped caring what people think about me and what expectations they placed on me a long time ago, right? That's just the fact that I've been out on my own and been so individualistic for so long. But like, at the end of the day, like a lot of people get tripped up on tradition and things that they shouldn't be getting tripped up on because they fail to realize that what your parents think about what religion you practice doesn't matter. Your parents still will care about you, right? And if they don't, then shame on them. But like, you know, and I think me and Leanne, my wife, we both are pretty, you know, understandable about that. We make our decisions for our family, nobody else. <laughs> love it, love it. Hello, this is Josh McCowan, CEO of Viva May Hospitality and the beautiful Renault Resort Winery. I have to tell you, the secret's out. And the secret is On Air Brands. On Air Brands Creative Agency, which specializes in launching podcasts, transforming live events into live streaming events, and social media marketing soup to nuts. On Air Brands has changed the game. There'll never be a day from here forward when you and I and our companies don't need to be on the air. Every brand needs to be on the air, but so few know that. So it's great to work with a group that are ahead of the curve and to find a company that has been built on the core foundation of the future of marketing. If you're ready to broadcast your brand like they've done for my brands, take the next step and make a change that can transform your business. Reach out to On Air Brands today. That's onairbrands.com. Yes, onairbrands.com. What I noticed about you and James and, and Gary as well um, seems super self-aware, spiritual, uh, you know, just uh, authentically want to help people. Now, is that a part of the culture overall that stems from, you know, from Gary is, and, and all the leadership? Um, or, and, and then that's one question. But then also, how difficult or, or maybe easy is it to instill that in the younger people coming through that walk in with baggage, you know, because I, you know, like you, I, I grew up, you know, throughout corporate America and, and I had tons of baggage when I was in my twenties coming into creative agencies, especially with the plenty and, and the parties and the drinking and there's just the beautiful people, right. In an agency world, um, you can often get lost in that sort of culture, but imagine it's, it seems to me you guys are super healthy over there. How do you drive that sort of concept and idealism to to the younger generations? And and is all the leadership like you and James? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I have a lot of fond memories of leadership past, present, and hopefully future. I think, you know, like attracts like. I don't think it's necessarily something that is being taught as much as I think it's just something in the water, you know? Like, of course, Gary teaches selflessness. He teaches, you know, you know, trying to it's hard to teach self-awareness. It's hard to teach emotional intelligence, but he talks about those things and he puts them on a pedestal as something that's important. So even though those things are more inherent and they're, you know, learned through behavior more than they're learned out of a book, uh, I think it's, there is a healthy dialogue about the right things at, at Vaynerx. And we all tend to understand how we're measured, right? Like we know that it's not, something that you can get away with at this place, which is great. It's, it's why I've stayed so long. And you know, not only am I patient and loyal and, you know, that, that's like a characteristic that I, I draw from my mom that I'm very proud of, but, you know, it's it's not hard to stay at Vaynerx because the people are similar to you, you know, like you don't feel like it's like a weird unethical place that a bunch of people are, are getting hall passes, uh, but are really like assholes behind the scenes, you know, like you don't really see a ton of that, you know, whereas like I've been at other organizations where that, that may not be the case, you know, and I think when you find organizations like that, you tend to hold on to them longer, you know, uh, within reason, of course, but like, yeah, I mean, I want to, I always want to have leadership. I always want to have mentors that, you know, I feel, you know, I can lay my head down at night and, and realize that the person I'm learning from has the best interest of all of us in mind versus somebody that's all in it for themselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. I'm curious. I want to get into, um, you mentioned earlier, you know, cultural trends, and obviously we're here, you know, there's a lot of shifting, a lot of pivoting, but I, I still want to stay a little bit in, in, into your recent history and past. Um, when you transitioned as this SVP, you know, the senior vice president of Vayner Media to now sort of, I guess, relatively the smaller startup-like Sasha group, what was that transition like? Was there hesitation, anxiety on your end uh, when, when making that move? And how did, how did it happen? I feel like the first conversation I had with Gary about my future at VaynerX happened before I moved to LA and took the role as the SVP of Vayner LA. Um, I had a conversation with him probably about two years ago in like spring of 2018 where, um, and it was very casual, you know, we were, just, I forget what we were doing, um, <laughs> but I kind of casually told him, I was like, you know, I don't know if like my best role within the organization is like, like an SVP of client service. Like that's, to me, like I've spent most of my career being the guy at the small social digital agency, uh, talking to other people within the the IATs and the IMCs and the mix, talking to everybody about like the the powers and the wonders of of social and digital media. And my my opinions have always been kind of running contrary to popular belief in the C suite. You know? So um, you know the, the idea of like kissing the ring and the idea of like sipping mai tais at the beach of France at the Cannes Lions just never really warmed up to me all that much. Um, I'm somebody that like cares a lot about people, so building organizations and, and building them operationally has always been uh, of interest to me. So I mean at at agencies prior to Vayner, I had managed teams up to like 12, 15 people. And at Vayner, um, when I was building uh, my AB InBev portfolio and Johnson Johnson por portfolios out to, I don't know, we got up to like between 60 and 90 people at one point, uh, I think back in 2017. I was always interested in this idea of like operational excellence or operational strategy. How do you build successful organizations? 
like that type of thing. And uh, so I put it on Gary's radar, um, you know, back in those days. And I think it was more or less because I didn't know how to pinpoint and say, hey, this, I don't want to do this role anymore, you know. But then like six months later, he said, okay, great. But like, go out to LA and become the client service for me, which was exactly the same role that I already had, just in a different place with different people and different brands. Um, And so I think it was maybe, it wasn't very long into that tenure there where I realized that, no, this isn't necessarily a problem that's going to go away. (laughs) It's only been compounded by now the fact that I'm in a completely foreign surrounding to me and uh, I don't have the comfort of the team that I have built surrounding me. I I loved my team back in New York. I, I, we did some amazing work together. Uh, some of the best moments of my life have come with that team. So not to say anything ill about the LA team that I inherited. It was just because I was in a new environment, a new surrounding, I realized it was that much more apparent to me that I wasn't in the right role. And um, all the while I saw James building the Sasha group back on the East Coast and he was starting it up with a uh, you know, group of folks that uh, that I'm intimately familiar with uh, from a leadership perspective. Uh, a lot of guys on James Leadership Council were people that I helped recruit to Intermedia five, six years ago. Uh, people like Mark Evans, Maribel, um, and, and if I didn't recruit them, I've definitely managed them or worked with them. Uh, you know, they've been on my teams at VaynerMedia and stuff like that. Uh, so I knew it was a, a team of like-minded individuals. And then once I started to see what they were doing, I started to think about it and, you know, a, a brand or an agency that's built to help small to mid-sized businesses, uh, you know, unlock their potential seemed right up my alley. Like I know you know because you've seen the the roster of brands I've worked on. I've pretty much spent my whole life working on Fortune 500 brands uh, since I got out of grad school. And what you'll notice when you spend that much time working on those types of brands is that you do a lot of campaign work, right? You do a lot of, and there's nothing wrong with campaign work, but these brands are so massive that they're the types of brands that can afford to have six agencies on roster, you know, that do specialized things. And you wind up getting to a place where the agency service providers aren't always viewed as the partner to the brands, or they're not necessarily perceived as the people that can help them strategically figure out how to unlock growth within the organization. So what you see in a lot of a lot of brands that are owned by you know multinational organizations is you see the the Procter and Gamble rotation style. You see what IBM did when they started to create the brand management rotations, and they they'd send you know, brand managers around to brand after brand after brand, and then they learn and kind of grow within their own ecosystems. But I always thought it was a shame kind of in that environment where um, a brand that could be like a three or $4 billion brand, uh, it's really hard to figure out how to unlock growth when you don't have leadership that stays in the same place for too many years. Uh, you know, I, li- I like a system where like VaynerMedia We've got a CEO that's been the CEO for 10 plus years. It's very clear to me where we're headed. It's not always that apparent when you work with big, huge brands that, uh, you know, are decades old and, you know, had had their leadership change hands uh, multiple dozens of times. Uh, so what Sasha Group represented to me was a chance to kind of get in there with founders, get in there with CEOs, get in there with heads of marketing, people that are first generation marketers of the brand or product, um, and having real impact with them, right? My strategies, my insights, um, the teams that I deploy against their brands can pay real dividends and help take these brands from these rags to riches stories, you know, going from like Gary did with his father's company, you know, 4 million to 60 million or 12 million to 100 million or 100 million to 5 billion, right? So I wanted to be part of a winning team where what we were doing was, was you know, helping 
you know, create that astronomical growth versus just eking out like marginal victories or slight revenue intakes, right? Or having a good quarter or having a good brand health, you know, whatever over here. Like I was tired of those like small little justifications of your existence on massive brands. I wanted big, massive impact on smaller brands, right? The way I was seeing the Sasha group come to light was, you know, and even though James and team won't, won't put it this way to me, I have to kind of read into it myself. I want to be part of what the next wave of Fortune 500 looks like, right? <laughs> so the brands that aren't in the for- Fortune 500 now, but will be five years from now, I would love to get in with some of those brands at this level here and help them on their rocket ship to becoming publicly traded or whatever that may be. Wow. Wow. You put it so succinctly, brother, and uh, and it really resonated with me. A lot of the things you said, um, being part of you know multi billion dollar companies, not part of, but servicing them as agencies, um, I always noticed any slight change or recommendation or campaigns that we tried to push out, it it, it was like moving a gigantic vessel, a ship. Right. And then like to course correct, you know, let's move, you know, three degrees to the right. And uh, that takes six months, you know, and it was always super frustrating. I remember you're giving me flashbacks to that. And what I like about what you said is to be an agent of change there. Yes, it's, it comes in like micro levels, but then with smaller brands and working with smaller groups and found founders directly, um, you can get fulfillment out of that. And, and, and really just massive results as a result, because you're you're. You're now having a direct impact, working with the CEOs, working with the founders who are basically giving you the keys. They're like, you help drive this ship for us because we trust you, your experience, the team. So yeah, congratulations, man. That's that's huge. The advice that I give to younger people is you have to kind of compartmentalize that, right? Understand that when you come out of school, it's gonna chances are you're gonna work for bigger brands at a younger age, right? You're also gonna care about different things. You're gonna care about how creative you are or how viral your campaigns go and stuff that you just aren't gonna care about as much later in life, which are more results driven, right? So you're gonna wind up getting to a place if you follow a similar trajectory in me, where you know you might work on bigger things earlier in your life campaigns that are name brand campaigns for name brand brands, people that your, you know, your grandma recognizes the brands you work on, your dad, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, they all recognize what you're doing and the work you're doing because it's at the height of creativity. That may not be what you care about 10 years down the road, right? You may care more about like, well, this is great, but like, how, how can I claim, you know, like ultimate success unless I taste the victory of the growth, you know, like yes. I want to be somebody that helped these brands become what they've become, not just like, you know, continue to cement. I think what I've done for the most part in my career is I've con- continued to cement brands place in, in consumer psychology. So by creating Audi's or with the help of a lot of my friends, but creating Audi's uh, first social media strategy back in the day and implementing that, you know, I further enhanced the brand of Audi to the current consumer, maybe attracted some new consumers, but I don't know if that, if I can necessarily claim that I'm like the reason or me and like a small group of people are the reason why Audi is so successful. Uh, Whereas I think getting in with some of these smaller brands, we can trace some of the success back to our relationship with them. It's massive. And and I love what you said earlier that you're creating the next Fortune 500, the next Fortune 100. Um, And that's that's massive, you know, being able able to be part of their journey. Um, So speaking of 
all the things that we've covered and we've covered a lot man thank you so much for being open and and just being transparent about your history and your life and your family it's all been so i've i've gotten a ton out of it i'm sure the the audience as well will get a ton um so i wanted to give back to them you know in terms of what we're currently going through and and the things that you're seeing within the sasha group and vaynerx where you know what can people do as small businesses to to pivot or to rejigger things so that They'll, they're setting themselves up for, for success. So talking about the pandemic specifically or talking about the most recent events? <laughs> I would say <laughs> the most recent events, we're talking about the riots, uh, which to me is um, is a side effect of being quarantined. You know, everyone's in the Jack Nicholson, the shining state of mind, and they're all looking for some outlet. And, uh, and I think that's a result. That's just my personal feeling. But um, uh, yes, that, that and just everything in general, the economy obviously is not the same and it's not going to be the same. So what are you, what are you, what are you telling folks? What are you telling business owners that they could do? So, I mean, uh, touching on the riots real quick, like I think the number one thing we can all do is just try to be a little bit more understanding as humans, try to seek out more information, learn from somebody, reach out to people. You know, what I've been trying to do is just simple gestures, just reaching out to your friends in the African-American community, just checking on them, making sure they're all right, seeing if there's anything you can do for them. Listen, uh, you know, listening is never bad advice. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, I'll probably leave it there because I don't probably, I, I don't know enough to really make grounded recommendations on what brands should be doing. But in terms of the pandemic, this one I have given a lot more thought to because we've been in, in this this moment in time for, seems like a year, but it's only been three months. Um uh, you know, number one thing you can do is don't like, like me as a 21 year old, don't sit around and pout about your situation, figure out a way now, you know, we've all had enough time to, to kind of come to grips with this. Obviously, a lot of people have, you know, varying degrees of, of, of how much they've been impacted. So I don't say that lightly. I'm not saying, hey, you know, don't don't be in a bad place. If you, <laughs> you know, if you, if you're a retail establishment or a restaurant, and your stuff got shut down, then of course, you're, you know, I don't want you to, to not be frustrated about that. But Start thinking about, you know, picking yourself up the mat and understanding and accepting the world for what it is, right? And the, a couple of the, the optimistic things that I've been thinking about since we've been self-quarantined are more long-term socioeconomic things. But so I don't know if it's going to be really helpful to brands tomorrow as they pivot. But if you think about it this way, just think about um, if, if your life and work is melted together, um, okay, what's going to happen with the economy as cities become smaller, right? People are wanting to get out of places like Manhattan and favor suburbs or favor rural areas because they can now, right? In a lot of instances, you're going to be able to telecommute more than you would in the past, right? Like you can go to another city or state where uh, your your paycheck will actually add something to a new economy, right? It may not help New York, but it will help somebody somewhere. Uh, so we, me and an architect were getting into this conversation the other day, and he was distraught about the restaurant industry and hospitality sectors in New York and thinking about, well, New York is going to suffer so much because all these people are going to want out of there. And I was like, well, yeah, but at the same time, like New York's had a long history run of financial success. I'm not saying that I want them to fail, but I also want America to win. So like if if a couple hundred thousand people had to take their white collar paychecks out to like South Carolina and Kentucky and, you know, West Virginia and Mississippi and, you know, other states, I'm, I'm not too opposed to that. Um, I, I think 
we can redistribute some of that wealth uh, by using technology and telecommuting to our advantages. Um, I think it will also have, it'll be a boon on home ownership, right? So I think, um, you know, not only with interest rates being low, um, being in your same city, but being able to find access to more affordable housing by being 45 minutes away and maybe only having to commute into your office one or two times a week or three or four times a week. If you don't have to go five days a week, you may be more willing to take on a more sizable commute, which might buy you more real estate, and more space. Um, and it might buy you more of the American dream you were hoping for, which might have psychological impacts and mental impacts, mental health impacts, because people aren't going to be packed in cars. That'll also have you know, impacts on society at large when it comes to, um, you know, how we treat our environment and the pollution that we keep putting into the air. So I think there are benefits to this thing, but in order to reap them, we have to do a couple of things. We have to first find the optimist point of view in all of it, right? How can you, when you just take your personal life, marry it together with your work life, look at the picture in totality, and then understand what are your new options, for optimizing your life against the American dream. <laughs> uh, I think you'll find a happier populace. Um, but, you know, that's just one part. I think the other thing is that's easier for me to say as an educated white man of privilege that has gone through my system to getting to where I am now, we can't necessarily ignore the people that haven't had the opportunities. So while we will see people that look like me and look like you go out and Re reconfigure their lives to be more optimal to ourselves, we've got to understand that there's some people that won't be able to do that optimizations without help. So how do we use technology to overcome and, and, and eliminate barriers and obstacles? What do we expect of our leaders in business uh, to make this stuff happen? One thing that I was thinking about in general is um, how can we maybe lean in on some companies like Zoom and like K-12 and, you know, people that are at the forefront of, of educating and providing technology to our youth um, and not necessarily hold them accountable because I, I am a capitalist and I, I do believe in, in uh, free markets. Uh, but how can we come up with ideas that might help propagate some of this behavior where we're, we're engineering opportunities towards people that wouldn't ordinarily have them? But I think it's a big, honestly, like the fact that the internet has democratized information should be a massive boon to the, the you know, people in the lower, uh, lower socioeconomic uh, parts of the ladder, because if we can get them an internet connection, some instruction, we can provide the information that they're missing out on by not having access to books. So what do we do? Who do we need to talk to? How do we raise the money, raise the right uh, pathways, uh, connect the dots more? Um, I think um, those are kind of like two, two ends of the spectrum. Um, you know, for the people that are the haves, figure out what your married life, not married in terms of like marital status, but joining your work and your personal life together, Overall, how do you optimize your situation? And then for people that can't do that, how can we you know, send the elevator back down, provide them more opportunities, provide them more pathways, um, yeah. just have these conversations, make people more aware? <laughs> That's good stuff, man. Yeah, thanks for putting that out there because that is powerful. Uh, I'm going to put you in touch with a, he's a mentor of mine. His name's Tim Rohde. He, he put together a program called One Life Fully Lived and they go into inner cities even in Philadelphia and, um, and here in New Jersey, all around the globe, um, around the country. And they, they, they teach through music um, they, uh, and, and um, leadership, you know, that came through uh, their environment and, and, and made it through. And, 
and, and have become thought leaders. And yeah, I want to I want to introduce you guys because they're he's on the path to to making a difference um, in in places where it's difficult to to shift your mindset um, and until you because you know it's all about surrounding yourself with with those people that think that way. Yeah, think about it this way: like um, if for for instance the real estate market does do what I say it's going to do, if there is a migration pattern of white collar people from urban areas to suburban or rural areas that will create economic benefit for people that don't have as much money. Cause for the first time in probably four decades in New York, you're going to see places like the waterfront in Williamsburg actually become more affordable to people that have not millions of dollars, but a decent amount of money. Right. So it, it may not impact the lower class from an economic perspective, but the middle class for sure. And you know, yes, people that do work blue collar jobs will be able to afford things in places they didn't ordinarily think they would uh, uh, originally. So there are some benefits to all of these different things happening. Yeah, yeah. A- any other sort of last minute uh, tips or strategies for people? You know, they they know you guys very well for you know, owning brands and, and, and creating content first, uh, you know, the whole jab, 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 you know, right hook sort of concept. Is there any sort of tactical things that anyone out there could sort of leverage? Um, I think, um, you know, one thing that I've always been um, probably trying to tune my radar screen into the most is that uh, people coming into this job economy right now are going to have it particularly tough and not enough people are out there talking about it. I know it was something that was trending on LinkedIn, uh, you know, maybe back in March at the, the very beginning of the outbreaks uh, where people were, you know, lending a sympathetic ear towards the class of 2020. But now that the graduates are here, they're not in college anymore. They need jobs. <laughs> and um, so this is less of a social media tactic, but more of a plea to people that have jobs to fill. Maybe no, maybe don't consider poaching people from other companies right now for a period of time. Maybe consider hiring displaced COVID-19 people that lost their jobs or hiring a recent graduate. Uh, I think finding a job in this economy where 36 million people have lost their job and now we have a wave of new entrants into the job economy, it's going to be a very special celebratory moment for the people that do find jobs right now. So take your time to congratulate people. Take your time to to understand what you can do for graduates uh, and for people that have lost their jobs. I put a simple post out there on LinkedIn a couple of months ago, uh, which is probably one of my favorite uh, posts because it's very true and any of us can do it. The simple act of liking every single job post on LinkedIn that comes across your newsfeed will help because you're helping to gain reach for the position that somebody's hiring for and somebody in your network might wind up filling that. Whereas if you didn't like the content, that person might not have seen it. So it seems like a small thing, but it's something that every single one of us can do. But I'd say like understanding, you know, how to marry, you know, context with your actions. It's a tough, tough world out there for people coming in in 2020 into the job economy. Um, So let's figure out a way to, to propel those people, mentor them, help them, open up your network to them. Um, yeah, that's the best advice I could give right now. And it's less about young people because I think we owe it to you as a society to figure out how to how to help our brothers and sisters that have lost jobs, but also how to help, help our sons and daughters that are coming into the market right now, you know, navigate a really tough climate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. Super appreciate you. That is all, you know, very, you're, you're very high level, um, you know, and I'm hoping that people can, you know, 
gravitate towards your message and understand that um, it's 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 bigger than us and and everything that's happened and ever happening. Um, there's a there's a much much bigger field um, that that we have to navigate and also be aware of. Um, so no, I appreciate you putting that. I like the liking all job posts is a is a simple, very simple, easy thing that people can all just take action on right now. Um, and another thing, just one more thing that I wanted to share that James mentioned to me was the ultimate currency right now is sharing people's posts. So I would encourage that too, you know, liking and sharing it um, so that people can all, you know, be aware of, of, of potential opportunities you were going to say. Same thing applies to uh, Blackout Tuesday or messages of, uh, that are going on in, in relation to, to all the, the news of the past week. Like, you know, the job economy is one thing in, in helping jobs become more discoverable to people. But, you know, knowing the algorithm and knowing how these, these tools work is very important. And uh, the more you know about how they work, the more you can use them and manipulate them to your advantage so that you can propel the messages that you care about. Um, and so that's another one, right? Like I've been making a point to go through, even though it seems redundant, it seems like, oh man, I should probably get out of here because I'm doing nothing but scrolling through a bunch of black pictures. No, it's important. You should stay there for like another hour and you should like every single one of them. Mm, right. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that's going to help. That's going to help make an impact. And there's not enough conversation. There's more conversation about, uh, Blackout Tuesday happening on Instagram and on Twitter and stuff like that. But LinkedIn doesn't seem like it's really taking root as much, which is a shame because that's where I like to spend the most of my time because I love reading articles and, and things about business. Uh, but yeah, so for me, it was the, the first things first, I couldn't think of a better platform to put stuff on than LinkedIn because it's the home that I spend most of my time and I want people to care about that message. So yeah. I've been going through and making a point to like and share and do all those things just so that um, it'll help um, you know amplify the message. Wow, wow, that's powerful, man. That's powerful. I'll definitely look for your your posts on LinkedIn and and help to start that movement. And I'll do it as well on on our side. But hey, brother, it was amazing chatting with you, getting to know you more. I'm hoping you know that we're able to to continue conversations and, and work together in the future. I know you got a lot of really cool stuff uh, coming up. Anything you want to share with the audience? Uh, what are your socials? And then also any sort of new things that you guys are launching? Sure. So my, you can pretty much get in touch with me uh, uh, at any social network. Uh, if you just type in Super Quattrone, so Super, and then my last name, Q-U-A-T-T-R-O-N-E, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all those platforms. Uh, in terms of what we're working on now that I think uh, is probably ready for primetime, I've got an event happening in three weeks or so. Uh, I think it's on June 23rd. No, I don't think I know. It's on June 23rd. And it's, um, it's something we're doing for authors. Uh, so it's a, a virtual event. Uh, we are likely going to have some of Gary Vee's time, who's a five-time New York Times bestseller. And the team that's kind of really propelled a lot of his books to, to success are going to share the tips and tricks of the trade. We're calling that one from pen to launch. Um, we don't have a lot of literature out on the internet about it right now, but we're going to get the website uh, at Sasha Group up and running with it soon. Uh, but if you reach out to me, I'll be able to put you in contact with the right people to, to book your ticket to the event. But that's happening in three weeks from pen to launch. Uh, it's a Sasha Group initiative that we're doing for authors. Love it. All right, brother. Well, been a pleasure, man, talking to you and looking forward to, to talking again. Take it easy. That's it for now, folks. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can contact me directly at eric at onairbrands.com. That's eric, E-R-I-K. 
at onairbrands.com. And if you aren't already subscribed to the show, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or any other podcast platform. And please recommend us to one or two people in your circle. That will go a long, long way to growing our community. Also, if you could rate us on iTunes, just take a moment uh, to give us five stars. And if they have more stars, give all of them. We'd greatly appreciate you for that. And always, always like, subscribe, and share, share, share this show on social media. We'd love you for that as well. And if you have any ideas or want to hear something on a future show, please hit us up. Maybe you have a question for one of my guests or you want to uh, tell a story, a success story. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can do that, especially if you're on the Anchor platform. You can leave us a voice message. We'd love to incorporate you and your voice on a future episode. Once again, folks, thanks again for listening to the Entrepreneur Circle. Please like, subscribe, and share share, share, share. I am Eric Cabral. And as always, remember, your network is your net worth. So get in the circle.